What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast. We're excited to dive back into God's Word, and hopefully this year you've been faithful and consistent in getting in God's Word. We know it's only the second week of the year, but what is very, very helpful is for you to find a routine. Maybe you listen to the Bible reading and you read along in a Bible, maybe with a pen in hand, maybe taking notes. Maybe you're a person who likes to read God's Word in a physical format. Maybe you read it on your computer screen. Maybe you read it on your phone. But however you take it in, I'm hoping that you have a routine at this point and you're staying faithful. You know, people say that in the first couple weeks, most people break their New Year's resolutions. And one of the reasons we have this podcast is that you wouldn't break any resolutions for Bible reading, but that you would not only read and be faithful to read, but you'd be good at understanding what God's Word says as well. So we're diving back into the book of Genesis, looking at Genesis 20 all the way to Genesis 34. So these 15 chapters are very important. Now, the first week, it was like we're covering thousands of years of history with the most important covenants and some of the key doctrines of the faith are established there. We're past that. And now we're building upon that, of course. But here in Genesis 20 through 34, we're covering the end of the life of Abraham. We're covering the life of Isaac and most of the life of Jacob. And when I say those three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sometimes you're used to hearing those three names all put together because God oftentimes introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he'll do that all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And even Jesus uses that language in the Gospel of Matthew when he wants to talk about how God is the God of the living. So this is important. These three names are significant. Sometimes we call them the founding fathers or the patriarchs of Israel. And that's because, remember, Moses writes this book through God's inspiration to tell the Israelites what kind of a nation they are. Remember, when did Israel get this book? Well, they got it in the wilderness as they were heading into the promised land to establish their new nation. And you need an origin story, and this is a true origin story of how God made promises to Abraham. They were passed on to Isaac, and they were passed on to Jacob. Now, Jacob has a new name that he's going to get during our Bible reading this week. It's the name Israel. The reason that's important is because Abraham did not just have one son. Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael, and he has a whole line of descendants that come from him, but they are not a part of the promise. Same thing with Isaac. Isaac did not just have one son. He had two sons. One of them's name was Jacob, and the other's was Esau. And we're going to see how the descendants of Esau become the Edomites. So if I was to ask you, who are the Israelites? Another way to put it are, they are the sons of Jacob. They're the daughters of Jacob. They are the nation that comes from the one man, Jacob. He's the starting point for this nation. So these three names are important because God is going to pass on the promises. And that's one thing I want you to take note of this week as you read, is that God is going to make promises to Abraham that he will repeat to Isaac in the next generation. And now when we read it, it's so close together to what we just read that we think, okay, yeah, I just read this. I just read this. But no, that's significant. I'm sure that Abraham told Isaac the promises that God made and said, these are very important promises. God's going to do something more amazing than we could ever imagine. And then Isaac probably grew up saying, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But then God tells him to Isaac. In Genesis 26, 
He says, I'm going to establish the oath I swore to your father. Now, that's significant. And then the next generation with Jacob in Genesis 28 and Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. He's renamed Israel and God repeats the promises. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So as you read this week, look for the repeated promises from generation to generation. Another thing I want you to take note of is how God favors one side of the family over the other and not because of any good thing that they've done. For example, Abraham has two sons that are super significant. One of them is Ishmael and the other is Isaac. Why is there all this focus on Isaac and not Ishmael? What did Ishmael do wrong? What did Isaac do well to get all this favor? Well, the answer is nothing. It wasn't based on some merit. It was based on God's election. We see the same thing with Esau and Jacob. I guess you could make the argument that, yeah, Esau did some bad things. He despised his birthright. But was Jacob much better? Did God say, yeah, Jacob, you're going to be the favorite because I like the younger ones more than the older ones? Like, that's not how God works. So this is simply God's big plan of salvation that he's working out. He has one lineage from whom he will bring the one who's promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, for example, an interesting story that we don't often think of is that in Genesis 25, when Sarah died, did you know that Abraham took another wife named Keturah and had multiple more kids? So it's not even Ishmael and Isaac. There's Ishmael, Isaac, and all the other little brothers and sisters that we don't really think of. They're mentioned in the story because they're, you know, they're Abraham's kids. That's significant. But they're not a part of this special lineage. What Genesis 25, 5, and 6 say are, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So remember, they're living in the land of Canaan that would later be Israel. So he sends them east, away from the promised land. Why did he do that? Well, because God had a plan for this nation through this very specific heir. It was only going through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. One big way that we see this is in Genesis 22, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, hopefully it is to you, where Abraham brings his son Isaac onto a mountain, Mount Moriah, the area that will later be the mountain of God that's called Jerusalem and Mount Zion. That same area is where Abraham is told to bring his son Isaac. He's told to sacrifice his son, which doesn't make any sense in God's plan. And to Abraham, it didn't make any sense, but he did it. And he was going to go through with it. And then God stopped him. And he said, this on this mountain, the Lord will provide. And it's this amazing picture of how God is working this plan. And he sometimes will ask his characters in his story to do things that might not seem logical. They might seem counterintuitive, but it's to work out the salvation plan to tell us, to tell even me and you readers thousands of years later that God is going to provide a substitute who will be sacrificed on behalf of his people. This all looks forward to the Messiah, who, by the way, will be sacrificed from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who will be sacrificed on the mountain of the Lord. Like your salvation and my salvation is provided for us through the sacrifice of this person who comes from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why if you're reading, you're like, man, what's the connection to me today? 
that's a massive connection to us. Another thing that I just want you to take note of this week is how the good characters, you know, quote unquote good characters, have these big character flaws that God works out over time in them. Remember, God's election of Jacob over Esau was not based on merit. It wasn't based on something that Jacob did. And I want you to notice there's a lot of different sins that are going to be taking place with God's people. One of them that might stick out to you this week as you read, you're going to notice that Abraham and Isaac both lie to a king named Abimelech, which is not even the same king Abimelech, but two different Abimelechs. They make the same lie two different generations about their wife being their sister because they were afraid of these kings. Now, why do they repeat this sin? Well, they repeat the sin because they were afraid and they lied out of their fear. And if you think Abraham and Isaac, their lies are bad, well, just get used to their son, Jacob, who is literally known as a deceiver and a schemer because of how often he lies. He doesn't just lie to bad people to get out of situations. He lies to those who are close to him to gain an advantage and to selfishly take advantage of the situation to get what he wants. He's a deceiver. And then he gets in trouble because of his deceiving, right? He deceives Isaac, his father, and Esau's really mad at him. We're going to read about the stealing of the birthright this week. And then he goes to this guy named Laban, and guess what Laban does? Laban deceives Jacob. And for a long time, you're going to see Jacob and Laban out-deceiving each other uh, until that is the time when Jacob wrestles with the Lord and God changes him and he gets a limp, and he's renamed Israel, and from that point on, he's no longer a schemer or a deceiver, but he's one who will be faithful to do the right thing from that point on. And not that he didn't always do the right thing, sometimes he did, but ultimately God sanctified Jacob through that process. So you're going to notice a lot of different character flaws in the good people, and I want you to see that the Bible is not some hero epic that puts its characters in such a glorified form that we think, man, they, they did no wrong. The only person who did no wrong was Jesus, who lived a perfect life in our place. And we're going to read about him in the Gospel of Matthew. And as you read uh, Matthew 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 this week, I just want you to take note of all the things that Jesus says and does. Obviously, that's like everything he does, right? But think about it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, that's where we're going to start our reading this week, He is going to say, be careful about your judgment. Make sure that you're not judging hypocritically. Make sure that you're judging rightly. And also, make sure that your judgment is worth it. Because you could throw your pearls before swine and and maybe sometimes it's not worth it. Then, he concludes his sermon with a summary statement of really what we read in the beginning in, in Matthew 5, 20 about the law and keeping the law. And he summarizes it by basically telling all of us the the summary of the law, how we should treat people, is that we want to do to others what we would want done to us. That is sometimes misinterpreted by us. We think, okay, Jesus is saying just don't harm people because we wouldn't want to be harmed. That's not the summary of the law. The summary of the law is that we are supposed to do something. We're supposed to actually act. Sometimes we think of the law as simply preventative measures that God puts in place to keep us from doing what, you know, maybe we want to do or something bad, right? But the law is more than that. The law spurs us on to do and live in the way that God wants us 
to live. So that's where he ends the sermon, but he doesn't just end it there. He ends it with four conclusions. We'll read about those. Uh, It's really cool. People have noticed that these four conclusions all present salvation in two paths, very similar to how the book of Proverbs does it. And there are some Psalms that do this too, where God displays two different pathways and there's life on one way and there's death on the other way and choose wisely. So that's exactly how Jesus ends the sermon. He says, you're going to take this and do one of two things. Either you're going to be on the wide road or you're going to be on the narrow road. Either you're going to bear bad fruit and be a bad tree or you're going to bear good fruit. Either you're going to come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? Or you're going to be accepted by him. Either you're going to build your foundation on the the sand or you're going to build it on the rock, which is displaying what does it look like to respond to my words. So as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as you have been reading it probably as as we speak, you probably have been reading it this morning. If you're reading Matthew 5 or 6 today, or maybe you're reading Matthew 7 today, I just want you to notice how Jesus brings his sermon to a close with a point. You've got to do something about my words. And right after that, how does Matthew describe Jesus's ministry? Well, the first thing that happens is people start following him. That's very important. People start following him. They're interested. They notice his authority, which is another key point that we see here. People notice the authority of Jesus. And then not only do they notice it, Jesus goes on and proves it over and over again. I mean, if you're just looking at Matthew 8, notice how he's healing a leper, a centurion's paralyzed servant, Peter's mother-in-law, then he calms a storm, then he heals two men with demons, then he heals a paralytic and then says, your sins are forgiven. He heals a bleeding woman. He raises a girl from the dead. He heals two blind men. He, he heals a mute man. Like all these miracles Jesus is doing in Matthew 8, 9, and 10, just to show you, I have power over every realm. Does Jesus have power over sickness? Yeah, he does, and he proved it. Does he have power over death? Absolutely. And he proved it. Does he have power over circumstance and nature and and the natural realm? Yes, he proved it. But does he have power over the spiritual realm? I mean, he can't cast demons out, can he? Oh, yes, he can. And he makes sure that you know it. Oh, well, can he just heal people? But that doesn't mean he can forgive sins. Like that's something only God can do. Oh, wait, that's exactly what Jesus does. So as you read the actions of Jesus, I want it to set up everything that he says, because that's how you would have interpreted this if you were walking with Jesus. You would have seen his amazing things and be astounded, right? But then Jesus would have turned to you and said things to you, and the the things that he did were just proof. It was just showing you, I'm worth listening to. And then when he does and, and says these things, it should inspire you to say, I am going to do what he says. If you just notice, there's some things that he says. One of the most important things he says is, do you want to be my disciple? Well, I might not let you have a place to live. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when the scribe comes and asks him, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus says, are you sure about that? Because a lot of people say they want to follow me, but that doesn't mean they will actually do it. And he points out some of the problems with their motives. Then he also, at the end of Matthew 9, very important section, teaches us a lot about Jesus. It says he went throughout the cities and villages. He was preaching and he was healing every disease. And when he saw the crowds, this is Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed 
and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus's thought process, when he sees people like you and me, he sees people with pity and compassion. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then what he does, what does he do right after that? He sends out laborers into the harvest. It's it's just so cool. And, and that's where sometimes when we read this day by day, we, we catch these really cool things that Jesus says and it impresses us. And we think, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. But then once you start taking the days and putting them together and realizing that chapter nine is followed by chapter 10 and Jesus sends out laborers into his harvest field right after saying that they're supposed to pray for this too, you start to understand more of how the gospel of Matthew is structured and put together uh, and is supposed to teach us something. And that leads into Matthew 10, another very important section. So if you remember, we said that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the first discourse unit, which is just a way that scholars have tried to say there's five big blocks of text in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus is speaking. So it's like there's five sermons. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is basically all of Matthew 10 or pretty much all of Matthew 10, which sometimes scholars call the missions discourse, or they call it the the teaching that Jesus said when he sent out his apostles. So a lot of this will be only applicable during this one missionary journey that he sends them out on. But a lot of it goes beyond to the situation that the apostles will face after Jesus has ascended back to the Father. So he'll, he'll, he'll teach them, what does it mean to be my disciple and my representative in the world when the world is against Jesus, right? He's going to explain what that looks like. So we're going to find out where he'll say things like, um, if I was persecuted, you'll be persecuted. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. He says things like, don't be anxious how you're supposed to speak. Know that in the very hour that you need it, my spirit will give you what you need. Um, He'll go on to talk about how don't fear those who can kill the body but can't do anything to the soul, right? Fear God. He'll say things like, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, I'll deny before my father who's in heaven. He'll say even more famous things like, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he says all these things to disciples and his 12 apostles who are about to go out and preach. But as we read it, as his disciples 2,000 years later, know that there is a lot of very important things that you can take away from this as well for your Christian life right now. Um, And then chapter 11, this last chapter that we'll cover this week, Jesus is going to be visited by the disciples of John the Baptist. So, and, and they're coming with a message from John saying, are you the Christ? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And we don't know why exactly John asked this question, but maybe we find an answer in how Jesus responds. He responds by quoting Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, saying, look at the miracles. Look at the preaching. Notice what's happening. And he doesn't say yes or no. He just quotes the Bible, and that is supposed to be enough for John and his disciples to take back and learn, yeah, this is the Christ. He's the one. Um, One other thing I want you to notice in Matthew 
there are some repeated phrases that you're going to get in chapter 10 and chapter 11 that you might not notice if you're not reading carefully. There are repeated woes. So a woe is like the opposite of a blessing. A woe is where Jesus will say, uh, woe is you. Like you are going to experience some kind of judgment for something. And the repeated woe is it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than those people who didn't repent at the teaching of Jesus. The people who saw the miracles and didn't respond. We see that in chapter 10, verse 15. And then we see it again in chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, which is just so important for you. And it's so important uh, for the non-Christians that we talk to that God's judgment is real. And there is more judgment for people who know more and don't respond to the knowledge that they have. I mean, that's sobering and it should be encouraging to you as you do whatever evangelism or discipleship that you do, that you should bring to bear the responsibility we have to really respond to what Jesus has to say. So important for us. Um, And in this whole section in Matthew, the bottom line is Jesus proves his authority through his actions and through his words, and then he instructs his disciple. And the question for me is, the question for you is, am I going to be one of these disciples? Am I going to do what Jesus says? Or am I going to be like the unrepentant cities and the crowds that simply wanted a free meal? Am I going to be like them? Or am I going to say, I'm going to do what he wants. What does he want me to do today? And that's a good way to think about your sanctification, by the way. Uh, What would Jesus have you do? What's the thing that God wants you to do today? Well, we're going to do that. Oh, God doesn't want me to do this today? Well, then let's not do that. This is not going to be helpful for us. It's not going to be good. So, um, Either way, whatever your situation calls for today, I'd encourage you as you read this and as you think about this, um, continue to seek the Lord and and do what he says. And that's where Jesus ends in Matthew 11, uh, 30. He he ends by saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, right? He's going to say, following me and being my disciple is better than being a disciple of the Pharisees. It's better than being a slave to the law. It's better than being a slave to sin. Following Christ is the most fulfilling and the most um, joyful thing that you can do, not because it's the easiest thing you can do, but because it's the best thing. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When you compare it to all the rest of of the the masters and lords that you can have, Jesus is the best one to have. And it should be making us all grateful today. If Jesus is your Lord, by by what I mean by that is, if you've submitted to Christ in repentance and faith, well then, take encouragement today to do what he says. So thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us on the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. Just want to remind you, it's best to subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. And also our videos are on YouTube. So you can look up John Fabares on YouTube, subscribe to that dude's channel. Uh, You might find some sermons in there as well that I preach to the high school ministry, or you can go back and and see uh, baby John preaching if you want. Um, and find some of my old stuff. But um, anyway, thanks for being here. We'll see you back next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast.